était une fois à l'entrée des artistes. Hi, Alison. Hi there, Sarah. So we're back, mm-hmm. a day late, though, from what we originally promised. Yeah, yeah, strike action here at RFI. Our technical staff has been protesting over pay and conditions. But we are back just in time for the cinema awards season. Yeah, the Oscars are coming up in the US, and, and France just had its César. Yeah, the French equivalent of the Oscars. And French cinema is going through a bit of turbulence. You know, it's got its own Me Too revolution bubbling away. Uh, seven years after the Harvey Weinstein affair shook up Hollywood. At the Caesars this year, the actress Judith Godrèche got a standing ovation when she called on the film industry to break its silence over sexual abuse. Godrèche is now in her early 50s and she recently revealed that she was sexually abused by two very well-known directors when she was just 14 and 15 years old. Silence has been my driving force for 30 years. Why allow this art we love so much, this art that binds us together, to be used as a cover for the illicit trafficking of young girls? It's in your hands. We're in the spotlight at the dawn of a new day. We can decide that men accused of rape should not be allowed to call the shots in the cinema. Don't think I'm talking about my own past. My past is also the present of the 2,000 people that have sent me their testimonies over the last four days. It's also the future of all those who still don't feel strong enough to testify. To believe in yourself, you also have to be believed. The world is watching us. We're lucky enough to live in a country where it seems that freedom exists. So with the same moral strength we use to create, let us have the courage to say out loud what we know in silence. Now, Godrèche has pressed charges against director Benoît Jacot, with whom she began a relationship when she was just 14 and he was 39 at the time. She says he groomed and sexually assaulted her. She's also filed a sexual abuse case against the filmmaker Jacques Douillon, who directed her when she was a teenager. Both men, who are now in their 70s, have denied the charges. And it's not just directors who are in the firing line. Gérard Depardieu is under investigation. Yeah, he's one of France's most famous actors and several women have filed charges of sexual assault against him. So so women are speaking out. I mean, th- things are changing. They are. But there have been a series of steps to get to this point. Mm. And a very important one was at the 2020 Caesar Awards when the actress Adèle Haenel stormed out of the ceremony in protest over the director Roman Polanski winning the Best Director Prize for one of his films. You'll remember that Polanski is technically still a fugitive from US justice. He was convicted for child abuse there in the 70s. Mm. Um, And Adèle Haenel has her own story because she's accused the director of her first film of sexually harassing her when she was just 12 years old. That investigation is ongoing. At the time Haenel protested in 2020, her gesture was met with silence and a certain embarrassment, a far cry from the huge support that Godrèche has received. So I talked to Berenice Hamidi about this. She's a specialist in aesthetics and politics in the performing arts at Lyon University. And we talked about whether we really are seeing a turning point in French cinema culture. There's a shift in the balance of power, I would say, because Judith Godrèche, she was listened to. People 
uploaded. And uh, that's a big change because when Adele and I left the room and nobody left after her, she was alone. Judith Goresh is not alone. People are listening to what she's saying. The culture of silence has stopped in the way that actresses speak now. Judith Goresh and others have now a very strong way of speaking about sexual violence, the structural dimension the reasons why the cinema industry is so specific and a place where there are many, many more violences and the, the lack of accountability of directors, of um, movie stars. How is that different from the US? The difference between France and the US regarding the cinema industry is that the producers don't have as much power as they have in the US. In France, it's more the movie directors or the movie stars like Gérard Depardieu, who have so much power and who are the ones who can silence women. You mentioned Gérard Depardieu. He is under investigation for sexual assault and rape. And yet President Macron, at the end of last year, described him as a genius of his art and said that he made France proud. What does that tell us about the French culture still? Well, it tells us two things. First, that there is a French specificity in the way that for every man, as long as they are powerful and uh, have economical and symbolical power, they are authorized to be violent. Not rape a woman with a knife, of course, but there is a French culture of uh, considering that forcing women is a sign of strength, of virility. And so it's not just that they are authorized. It's something that feels good and it empowers them. And the big problem is that it's rewarding. This is one problem. This is why we had the year of the Weinstein affair. In 2017, there was this open letter uh, written and signed by Catherine Deneuve and other very powerful women who said that uh, there was this uh, right to importune, which means to bother and even to be a bit rude and uh, vulgar and forcing women. And they said it was a liberty, it was a freedom, and this was an important freedom to preserve for them freedom in a way to act bad with women. And so this is part of the French culture, a French art of seduction. There's a, a misconception that seduction is forcing women in France. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But what uh, President Macron said, it has something to do with another problem in France, which is the way we consider that artists have a free pass, not only to be rude, but to transgress, to trespass the um, rules that only apply to regular, normal people. And since they are artists, they are genius, they are above all us, they are authorized to behave in a way that would feel shocking and disapproved by uh, everybody if they were normal men. It's the culture of artists who are also considered bigger than life. You know, Depardieu is huge. It's, it's not an, a human being anymore. Somehow they don't have to abide by the same rules. Benoit Jacot, who was accused of grooming and sexually assaulting Judith Godrèche, he's denied 
the claim, but at the same time, he's admitted that, yes, he needed to have this physical sexual relationship with her when she was 15 years old and starring in his films. Is that, again, something a little bit French-specific? Absolutely. What is specific is that not only did he say that he had to have a relationship with Judith Godrej, but also with other very, very young uh, girls who were underage. And, but he also said uh, something very important and very new. He admitted that he perfectly knew that it was against the law. And it was what felt good for him to know that he was transgressing the law. And also what felt good, and he said that too, was that he knew that other people were envious about him because of that. So it's the first time we have the explicit conception explained to us of someone who knows that he feels above the law. And he said also something else that is extremely interesting. He said that cinema is a cover for this type of behavior. He perfectly understood that he had a free pass and that he could use it because of the way we as a society consider artists like him. And what about the development of art house cinema in France that, you know, almost glorified the film director? Do you think that that somehow paved the way for this abusive power relationship to, to develop, to exist? Yes, that's another difference maybe with the Hollywood industry, which is that it's more independent, the independent movie industry and what we call cinema d'auteur, which led to this cult of the filmmaker, as you said. But I think there's also this idea that in order to film an actress, the filmmaker has to be in love with her, which is one conception we could discuss. Uh, but the other one is that since he has to feel desire for her, she has to accept this desire and to accept to have sex, but not only to have sex, but also to have a relationship and that is something that explains why you can't, as a lot of people want to do in France, separate the artist and the man. You can't do that because they don't do that. They don't separate. They have to be a man in love, a man who feels desire to film an actress. And so you see that maybe we are at a turning point, but it's a very difficult one to take this term because you have to change the whole way artists think about the creative process, think about what it is to film someone. So it's very deep incorporated values that have to change now. So is anything changing like on set and in the way that people are working in the movie industry? Well, there are starting to be uh, these so-called intimacy coordinators, like in, you have in the States, you know, people who are there to mediate sex scenes. But there are only four of them in France, uh, ah. compared to around 70 in the US. And in fact, Hamidi told me that she knew of only one film so far where these people had been used. Mm. So that's still very much in the early stages. But there is financial pressure on the film industry to evolve. The CNC, that's the National Centre for Cinema, conditions its grants to productions that are compliant with obligations to prevent sexual harassment. For example, they have to hand out information in the workplace, including on set, uh, have a sexual harassment referent if there are more than 250 staff, an internal procedure for reporting harassment, uh, a unit where victims can be heard and so on. 
it's clear, isn't it, that there's so much money involved once a film is in production that it's quite difficult for victims to come forward. Nobody wants to be the one to put a whole crew out of work. But maybe there's nothing like giving financial incentives ahead of a shoot to get people moving in the right direction. So, Alison, this is a leap year, une année bisextile, as it's called in French. Yeah, it's a peculiar word, isn't it? Although, <laughs> I, be- I believe it does exist in English, too. Yeah, yeah, it does. We, do, we just don't use it as much. So, it's mm. Latin, right? Because it comes from the Julian calendar, brought to you by Julius Caesar, whose 365 days were not quite in sync with the actual length of the solar year. There's a six-hour difference. So, every four years, that adds up to an extra full day. In order to make this up, at the time, they chose to cover it by doubling <laughs> the sixth day before the 1st of March, B. Sixtus or 2nd 6th. Hmm. Well, kind of complicated. Today, we have it as an extra day at the end of February, February 29th. So what this means is that people born on the 29th of February technically only get a birthday once every four years. Poor thing. Yeah, yeah. They're very, very young. <laughs> and while this is something to kind of giggle about, there are some repercussions. Um, there's always a question about when you reach your majority or turn 18, which is in a year that is not a leap year, so your birthday doesn't appear. So different countries have come down on either being February 28th or March 1st. In France, it's never been very clear. And one of the very few references to those born on February 29th is a voter registration decree from 2013 that it would be right to accept that someone born on the 29th of February would become an adult on the last day of February, on the year of their 18th birthday, which can be a 28th of February. <laughs> Ooh, it's all quite convoluted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Not super clear, but there you go. Um, people have talked about running into problems like finding their February 29th birthdays on pull-down menus online, you know, for taxes and other things. And there's all sorts of awkwardness involved with having a birthday that really does only appear every four years. In the past, that may have led some parents to declare their children's birth as being either the day before or the day after to Mm. avoid administrative hassles. And, you know, this may have actually been the case for my own grandmother. I've been told her birthday was March 1st, but apparently she may well have been born on February 29th. So are there, in fact, fewer births recorded on the 29th of February? Well, these days, no, actually. So births are more closely registered. Statistics really show that February 29th has the same average birth numbers as any other day. But, you know, while it can be a hassle for some, it does remain an exceptional day. It's, you know, every four years. And a newspaper has embraced this uniqueness. It comes out every 29th of February, ever since 1980. Two friends founded the Bougie du Sapeur, the soldier's candle. They named it after a character from one of the very first French comic strips, the Sapeur Camembert, which came out in the late 19th century. Uh, The character was born on February 29th, 1844. And, you know, he's a simple man and he finds himself conscripted into the army at age five, so he says, only after five birthdays. And that kind of, you know, light, silly humor is what permeates this paper. We have one point of view, point of view is humor. All of us, we just want to laugh when we write our uh, article. And uh, if 
we don't take any pleasure to write it, we think it won't be a good article for the public. That's Jacques Dandy, the paper's current editor and self-described jack-of-all-trades. He took over the publication in 1996, its fourth edition. Today it continues as a labor of love for about a dozen writers every four years. During four years, we read the press, we listen to the radio and the TV, and we keep uh, in a sort of box. We take uh, notes, we uh, take parts of the newspaper, and we said, perhaps this will do a good subject for the next uh, newspaper, for the next Bougie du Sapeur. We decided what we will use six months before. Approaching subjects with humor, he says, allows the paper to address any subject. If a topic's too touchy, it could go in the next edition four years later. So in the 2024 edition, for example, there's nothing about the war in Gaza, nor is there anything specifically about COVID, um, you know, which did start four years ago, but it's hard to laugh about. We forget the COVID. That's the past. It was not very funny. So we, no, uh, the two main titles on the first page, the first one is we are now the opportunity to become all of us, to become intelligent. You just have to press a button now, you know, with artificial intelligence. So you don't have to, to study. You don't have to work. You are intelligent with your computer. The second main title is that people, they think they can easily change from a man to a woman. And uh, we have a journalist, a woman, who wrote an article to say, be careful, it's not as easier that you think to be a woman. <laughs> the article is a bit cringy, you know, this whole making trite of transgender transitions. Well, and then it does decry heavy breasts and annoying hair oh. as problems of being a woman. <laughs> But then the author goes on to write about the higher costs of services for women, the so-called pink tax, uh, which another article in the paper elaborates on. And, you know, contradictory expectations from heterosexual men who are looking for women who are soft but strong, sexy but not vulgar, nice but not a victim. Yeah, legitimate question. <laughs> yeah. So where can we get a copy of this amazing bisex-style publication? <laughs> you can't find it online. Jean Dandy is committed to trying to keep print alive. He distributes the 200,000 copies in newsstands in France, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Previous editions have become collector's items, so maybe it's worth trying to get your hands on a copy this year. Autre séquence, autre scène, chant contre chant, gros plan sur elle. T'as raison, y'a que l'amour qui vaille la peine. Demande à l'éclairagiste qui l'était. So going back to cinema now, not making films, but showing them. One of the first acts of the new culture minister, Rachida Dati, was to launch a nationwide consultation, very French, mm. on culture in rural areas, because 22 million people live in rural communities in France. That's a third of the total population. And the culture minister says they should have better access to libraries, theatres and cinemas. So in the centre of France, in the Loire Valley, there's already a project to bring films to rural towns that don't have cinemas. It's called the Cinémobile, a truck that converts into a cinema for 80 to 100 people. The project's been running since the early 80s, and there are three of these trucks now. They show films in a different town every day of the week and serve 46 towns in total. 
Jess Phelan visited one of them. Philippe Leroy is giving a tour of the Jacques Tati, one of three cinemobile lorries that crisscross the Centre Val-de-Loire region of France daily. He's in his mid-50s, wrapped up warm in a beanie and a fleece, and he's been driving the cinemobile and selling tickets and showing films for more than 30 years now. We do everything by ourselves, from A to Z. We drive the truck, we set it up, we project the film, we do the cleaning and the maintenance. I started in 1991, so this is my 33rd year. Time goes by quickly. I don't feel like I've been doing this job for 30 years, but it's more than a job, it's a passion. It's not a typical profession at all. It's not a typical cinema either. The trucks are the only ones of their kind in France. They're built by a local company and they drive like a normal lorry. But when they're parked, the sides of the trailer open out sideways, kind of like pulling out a drawer, and a set of steps folds down. You go up the steps and there's a little ticket booth, which is also where the projector is. Then you pass through a swing door and suddenly you're in a cinema. There are rows of red seats on either side of an aisle and at the front, of course, a big screen. Pascal Lered is a member of the local council in Mer, the town where the cinemobile is parked today. It's no different. It's a bit smaller than a cinema, but just as comfortable. The seats are good and there is a big screen. It's just like being at the cinema. C'est comme au cinéma. There is one big difference, though, the price. The Cinemobile is subsidised by the government, the region and town councils, so it can sell tickets for a lot less than private movie theatres. This woman is a pensioner, so she gets a senior discount at most cinemas. But even so, she says the prices here are hot to beat. I'm lucky enough to live 300 metres from the Cinemobile. It's very convenient and very comfortable too. And the prices are really exceptionally good. I have a loyalty card. With the card, it's six showings for 24 euros. So that works out at four euros a film. It's really good. It's open to everyone. The cinemobiles aren't just about cheap entertainment. They also have a cultural mission. They show independent films, documentaries and films shot in the region. And they have partnerships with local schools. Today, a middle school class has come to see a Hollywood movie to help them practice their English. What's your name? Uh, my name is Lorna. And you just saw a film in the Cinemobile. Which film was it? Uh, it was a film um, of the life of Steven Spielberg, uh, The Fabulous Man. Did you like it? Uh, yes, it was very good. Uh, he speaks about his life and uh, his girlfriend and what he does in his life, so it was very impressive. Uh, my name is Gonidan. Uh, my name is Ornella. Do you like cinema in general? I'm a fan of cinema, uh, especially K-drama, thriller. Have you been to this Cinemobile before or is it the first time? It's the first time today. Was it different to other cinemas? It's not very different, but it's cool. Like all cinemas these days, the Cinemobile faces competition from premium TV channels and streaming services. But the driver, Philippe, says there's something about it that keeps people coming back. 
We've got very loyal customers because, of course, people appreciate that we come to see them out in the countryside. Some of them come because they're cinema lovers and they want to see the film, and others come because they're glad we've made the effort to come to them. Sometimes people will ask, so what's the film? What are we watching tonight? They'll show up just because we show up. And then there are others who just want an evening out. They come by and work clothes in the afternoon, then that evening they'll come back all dressed up because that's their outing for the week or for the month. That's what the woman I spoke to said. She's here with three of her friends. They're all retired, all neatly dressed for the occasion. And they've come today to see a film that was shot at a nearby chateau where they go walking sometimes. But for them, it's not necessarily about what's on. They say it's a chance to get together, nice way to spend an afternoon. And one even says when she lived in Paris, she was 500 metres from the nearest cinema. Now with the Cinemobile, it's only 300 metres away. In fact, they said they were even considering coming back for a double feature later that evening. <laughs> That's them trying to persuade one of the group who wasn't sure. I've still got two tickets left, one of them says. So they tell her she has no reason to stay home. <laughs> We've come to the end of Spotlight on France. Uh, we're a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you want to write to us, we're at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, March 14th. Bye, Allison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Et je t'emmène au ciel.